0: All right, we're in Genesis chapter 14, verse 8. You guys have your Bibles. I want to encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can download our app. Genesis 14, verse 8. All right, here we go. 14, 8. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bala, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in the battle... In the valley of Sidim, against Kador Laamr, king of Elam, title king of nations, Amrafel, king of Shinar and Ariach king of Elisar. Are you impressed with all those names right there? That was not easy. Yeah, no, it took practice. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. You might be thinking, what the heck is this all about, right? Well, here, here you go. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. That's, that's the deal. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebin tree of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eschol and the brother of Aner, and they were allies of Abram. Now, when Abram heard that his brother, different than what uh, it was just said earlier, that Lot was his brother's son, which would make him his nephew. Why does it say brother here in verse 14? This is a Hebrew idiom. It's a way of, um, it's a way of expressing the deep family bond here. We're talking about blood. And so that's important because his nephew just got kidnapped and the family relationship of protecting his nephew is expressed by saying, brother. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So you can take a look at your Bible map later. Dan is up in the northern part of modern Israel. So he's all the way down to the south. He travels all the way up north. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. That's a long way too. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kador Lamer and the kings who were with him. Check this out. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. I mean, this is just, this guy pops out of nowhere, literally. And he blessed him. Remember, super polytheistic, uh, pagan cultures all around. Abraham's just had this unique divine revelation from God. But this guy worships the same God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High. So we know who we're talking about, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies. How did this happen, to Abraham? Well, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham's response, and he that is Abraham gave him a tithe of all. Let's pray today. And Father, we thank you. God, we're so thank you, thankful about how faithful you are. You're a good God. And God, your goodness is not only demonstrated in Abraham's life, but demonstrated in our life. Father, thank you for the revelation that you've given to us. You've given us eyes to see your value and your worth, your qualities and attributes. God, thank you for every demonstration of faithfulness. Thank you for every single blessing that you've given to us. So many, it's impossible for us to count them all. God, we pray that you would shape our hearts to respond to you, to respond to your worth and your faithfulness through worship. You're worthy. God, you are worthy to be worshiped in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. I just want to tell you today, you know, sometimes we read the Bible in such an institutional, sterile way. It's like, oh, yeah, it's another Bible story. And, and, you know, honestly, I know this is not you, but sometimes it's like checking a box. You've got a chapter to read, and so you just, you know, you hammer it out, you knock it out, you get through the chapter. And, you, you know, sometimes if you read institutionally, you really do miss a story. And this is a crazy story. I mean, literally, I think a movie could be made out of this story. If you're a producer here today and you make a movie and you make money, 10% of the royalties go to Calvary Chapel Las Vegas because the idea, right, was generated here. But I do, you, you read the story and if you just take time and really consider what it is that's going down, I mean, it is, it's a wild scene uh, and the scene up to this point is pretty wild as well. Let me just give you a little bit of a recap. This will just take a second. But, you know, Abraham and Sarah were chosen by God. They were chosen while they were living in Ur, while the, they were worshiping false gods. Remember, Abraham and Sarah were befriended by God. It was an act of grace. They were in no position to, to earn, you know, God's friendship. It was just that God initiated it. God started it. And not only did God start it, but he made promises to them. Amazing promises, right? Astounding promises, um, and those promises also came with a command. And the command was get out of, get out of her, get out of the place that you're living, the place that you've lived all your life, where all of your connections and relationships are, where you've built up your business and and um, and all of that. Leave your family as well. And I'm not telling you where you're going. I'll let you know when you get there. You know that you've arrived at the promised land. But just start moving. And so Abraham did that. Um, Abraham left. He uh, took his possessions. Uh, He took his servants. He also took Lot, his nephew. We'll talk about whether that was a good decision or not. And uh, he made his way to the promised land. You know, they got to the promised land, Genesis chapter 13, and there was a famine in the land. So they continued south all the way to Egypt or near Egypt. And um, when the time was right, Abraham. Uh, turned around, headed back up north towards the land of promise, towards Canaan. He took with him, like I said, Lot, and Lot was with him on this whole journey. When they started heading north towards the promised land, towards Canaan, uh, there was conflict between Lot, uh, his servants, his shepherds, and Abraham's servants and shepherds. And so the conflict was so great that they decided they needed to part ways. Abraham said, listen, buddy, this is what I, I want you to do. I want you to pick pick your place. Pick the land that you want to dwell in. And whatever you pick, I'll choose the opposite. And this is a topic for another time, but Abraham trusted in the sovereignty and the providence of God so much that he knew even when Lot exercised his free will and picked the land that he thought was good for himself, it would have been impossible For him to choose the promise that God had given to Abraham because Abraham knew that place, that land was secured. And this is important because sometimes, you know, when people are exercising their free will around us, we get so concerned that it's going to affect or impact the promise of God. And the truth is this, if you're a child of God, the promises of God are going to be fulfilled in your life no matter what anybody else does. (laughs) Topic for another time. (laughs) Topic for another time. But they they part ways and, you know, we have a little insight into Lot here because the scripture is you read, you know, the whole canon of scripture on the lot of life, on the the lot of life, on the life of Lot, (laughs) on the lot of life. He had a lot of life, but uh, what you discover is that he was a really fleshly guy. You know, the, the Bible says there was this progression. So in Genesis chapter 13, what we discover is that Lot looks Uh, On the plain of Jordan, right near Sodom, he sees it's well watered. It looks just like Eden, the the scripture says. He's looking with his eyes. He's not praying at all. He's not investigating the purpose or or the plan of God in his life. He's learned nothing from the life of Abraham. And so he he, he dwells near Sodom. And then by the time we get to the story here, what we discover is that he's actually dwelling in Sodom. So he's actually in the city. In Genesis chapter 18, he gets even more integrated into this ungodly, vile, absolutely wicked city uh, to the point where he's actually sitting in the gate, which means that he's an elder in Sodom. He's sitting as a judge of the people. Um, And this is important because as you think about about Abraham and Lot, what you're going to discover is they're always presented in contrast to each other. So Abraham was a man who walked by faith. Lot was a man who walked by sight. Abraham was a man who looked for an eternal city whose builder and maker was God. Lot was a man who looked for a fleshly city. He looked for what was appealing to his fleshly desires. Abraham was a man who was generous. Lot was an individual who was greedy and worldly. And so the story goes, right, Lot is chosen, the city he wants to live in. Abraham is now in the promised land. He's built an altar to God. He's worshiping God. He's minding his own business. He's hanging under the terebinth tree, which, is it, which implicates like there's, it's, he's at peace, right? God is good. His, his tents are pitched, and um, God's, God's hand of blessing is upon his life. And unbeknownst to Abraham, there's all this geopolitical chaos that's happening, There are five kings or four kings that have aligned themselves from the north who are going to go down and they're going to attack five kings including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah with the intention of plundering, of raping, of kidnapping, and then then bringing back all of the loot. Well, while Abraham's chilling out, this whole business is going down and Lot is living in Sodom at the time. And so he gets swept up in all of this, and by God's grace, word gets to Abraham. I don't know what's going through Ab- Abraham's life, you know? I mean, I know you probably have dysfunction in, in your family, a little chaos. Abraham might have thought just right off the bat, man, family is so annoying. Like, really? Really? Are you kidding me? Like, we've just got settled here, and this little punk gets himself in this trouble? Well, I mean, he's got options, right? He doesn't, he doesn't have to go and rescue Lot But he chooses to do the right thing. He chooses to do the right thing. He surrounds himself with 312 loyal men. Now, the Bible says these men had been born in his house. Um, That's a way of saying that these men were servants by choice. It doesn't mean that they were like physically, literally born in the house of Abraham. It means that they had of their own volition. It's not that they were taken as slaves and that they were They were serving the house of Abraham under obligation um, or manipulation. No, these guys recognized the integrity of Abraham. They loved Abraham. They loved his house. They were loyal to him. And so of their own volition, they chose to be servants. Well, these were the guys. These loyal servants were the guys that Abraham, 312 of them, took with him into the battle. This as well, a little freebie this morning, you know, topic for another time. But listen, when you're in the midst of the battle, make sure you surround yourself with the right people. When you're in the midst of the battle, make sure you surround yourself with the right people. I'm not just talking about people who have a perceived loyalty to you. I'm talking about people who have a loyalty to God, who who live the right way. You say, well, you know what? I'm not in that geopolitical nonsense. I'm not really in a war. No, you are in a war. Every day you're in a battle. And and even if somebody says to you, hey, bro, I've got your back, make sure you're looking at their life so that you can see a a history of integrity and relationship with God. Because I'll tell you, that person who doesn't have the integrity uh, will not have your back, but they for sure will have a knife for your back. And that's that's not not what you want. Surround yourself with the right people. Abraham trusts God. And you can check out verse 22 later on before he even starts this venture up north. He makes an oath to God. Uh, you can see from the oath that his, his trust and faith was being invested in God to bring the victory. And he needed it because Abraham was outnumbered. We're not sure how many people comprise these various kingdoms. Abraham's own, on, he only has 312 soldiers. Um, but we for sure know with four kings and all of the territory that's associated with that, he was probably going against an army, numbering in the thousands. Um, so there's big strategic risk for Abraham in this. It's not like it's a done deal. It's not like he's got, um, you know, the, the numbers on his side. Not only that, but he's fighting on foreign soil. So he's heading, he's heading all the way to the north out of the territory that he's familiar with. And in spite of these liabilities, in spite of these liabilities, what happens? God gives him the victory. God works the miracle in Abraham's life. And when Abraham comes back with Lot, with Lot's family, with all the possessions that were uh, stolen, listen, when God gives a victory, he gives a complete victory. Let me just say, let me just say that right now. You know that, right? It's not, like, it's not like he just came back with the part. You know, when God grants a victory, it's a the it's, com- it's a complete deal. And as he's rolling back to bring Lot, his little nephew, back to his house to tuck him into bed, um, he's he's confronted with this guy named Melchizedek, this guy that pops literally out of nowhere, this character that just almost seems otherworldly, and he seems that way because he is. We're going to talk about Melchizedek in a minute, but this moment between what God does in his faithfulness and working the miracle and the revelation of God through this individual Melchizedek, Abraham responds in a really powerful way. Now, I say powerful like the word I'm going to use is so, you're so accustomed to it, but I don't want you to lose the gravity of the moment or the response of Abraham because Abraham in this story responds to God's worthiness and faithfulness by worshiping him. Abraham responds, in this moment, Abraham responds to the worthiness and the faithfulness of God by worshiping him. There's just been this consistent revelation in Abraham's life starting in Ur. It didn't end there, right? The light was going on. There was a spiritual epiphany that was giving. There was a download from heaven that was coming directly into Abraham's heart. It had been consistent, right? I mean, there were high points in this, but it had been consistent. And now as Melchizedek Melchizedek comes out and God is given this miraculous victory, the response of Abraham, it all kind of comes to a crescendo here, and he worships God. That's what he does. Abraham was not a casual worshiper of God. Abraham was not a casual acquaintance of God, right? Abraham was a worshiper of God. I want to ask you today, are you a worshiper of God, uh, no, why stop, just stop, just stop, because you know, there were like, I don't know, a lot less people at the first service than there are in this service, but their response was so much more robust than yours, I know, so uh, I'm not saying it's a competition, but, but are you a worshiper today? Yeah. There, there, you, there you are, there you are. And, and as you read Abraham's life, he worshiped God in various ways because you know that our worship is very diverse. It's not just about singing a song to God, right? What does Abraham do? Well, he builds altars. We're going to talk about altars in uh, chapter 22. Every new place that he landed in the promised land, he built an altar and he made a sacrifice and an offering to God. He worshiped God by walking in righteousness. He chose to do the right thing. He, did, he was not perfect, you know, he made some serious mistakes along the way, but he was a man committed to doing things in a way that honored God. He was a man who prayed, right? Prayer is an expression of our worship to God. We'll talk about that in just a minute. He believed God. Are you saying, Pastor, today that when we walk by faith and trust in God is an expression of worship? It absolutely is. And he also gave his possessions as an expression of worship to God. You know, we say this a lot here at our church Um, And it's important for us to say, um, but you know, sometimes I think things get said and we may not fully understand what they mean. Giving is worship. Do you believe that today? Giving is worship? You know, man, you guys are clapping already at a giving message. Going to make it easy on me. I want to clarify this, all right? Giving to God is worship. I'm not talking about just arbitrary generosity, I'm not talking about, you know, just doing random acts. Maybe this is the bumper sticker you used to have. I'm not just talking about doing random acts of kindness with no object uh, uh, in it. I'm talking about giving to God. Giving to God is, in fact, worship. It's not always perceived as worship. Sometimes when pastors or teachers talk about giving, it's, it's, there's already a framework that's established because sometimes, you know, you can be listening to a message on giving or you can be reading a scripture, and there can just be this sense of obligation. You know, like this is something that uh, I have to do, something that's just absolutely required of me, kind of like a law. Sometimes, you know, if there's been a bad experience in your life, maybe with a nonprofit organization or even with the church or the way giving is presented, um, or particular people and how they talk about giving, sometimes, you know, you can feel manipulated, you know, like, like things are being shaped in a way to take something that belongs to you. Sometimes I think giving, like on the other side of this, our own side, sometimes I think for some people, giving is all about perception, like how do people perceive me? What is my reputation? How do people value me with respect to other Christians? Well, I wanna be valued and so I'm vocal about what I give. For some people, it's just a business transaction, right? You get to the end of the year and you're like, man, I want the tax advantage. And so where's my letter, right? From all the different organizations. And hey, listen, thank God we live in a country that gives us a tax advantage. I'm not complaining about that whatsoever. I could, at the end of the day, um, I don't care. And at the end of the day, this church will never be governed by the government as it might try to influence. <laughs> you guys know. You guys know. That means absolutely nothing. Sometimes we have this, this idea of karma, right? We don't believe in karma here, but sometimes, right, you, you know you're thinking, well, I'll give. It goes like this, right? I'll do this because I can, I can go like this. Um, and then sometimes, of course, we think we're just getting in good with God. God, don't you see what I've done? Don't you see what I've given? You know, that's got to have some value. Don't you love me more? Don't you favor me more? Abraham, this is what the scripture says here. It's a very simple phrase or sentence here at the end of verse 20. The Bible says, and Abraham gave him a tithe of all. So do you guys know what the word tithe means? Tithe means tenth. Like literally, that's the translation. It means tenth. The idea or the concept of giving to God precedes this moment. This is the first time the word tithe appears in the Bible, but it's not the first time that people have brought an offering or a sacrifice to God. You remember, right? Cain and Abel, uh, they brought their sacrifice to God, uh, and they brought of the field, and they brought of the livestock. Um, The issue wasn't necessarily what they brought. The issue was the heart in which they brought it, Uh, but they were offering their their sacrifice to the Lord. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, clearly learned from his grandfather and from his father that generosity with respect to God, worshiping God through giving, was something that was absolutely established in his family. It was a pattern. In fact, when Jacob was beginning to discover his own relationship with the Lord. Genesis chapter 28, verse 22. He's in a place that he would later call Bethel. And you know, Abraham had a relationship with God. Isaac had a relationship with God. But just because his father and grandfather had a relationship with God didn't mean he automatically had a relationship with God. You guys know that, right? I mean, just because your kids grow up in a Christian family doesn't mean that somehow through osmosis or because you've patterned it that they're just automatically in relationship with God. They're in their own journey. They have to make their own decision. They have to have their own experiences. Maybe today you're uh, in high school or junior high uh, or maybe elementary school and your parents are Christians and maybe you go to our Christian school and you're like, well, that should do it for me, right? I mean, that means I have a relationship with God. No, it doesn't. You have to take your own step of faith and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Jacob was on this journey And this is what he says as he's beginning this journey with God. If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so he's saying, God, if you will guide me and you will provide for me so that I come back to my father's house in peace, if you protect me, then the Lord, Yahweh, not just any God, but Yahweh will be my God. And this stone which I've set as a pillar shall be God's house and all that you give me I will surely give you or give a tenth to you. So it's clear that Jacob recognized in his father and his grandfather consistent worship of God through giving. I just want to track this through scripture. This concept of a tenth was later codified in the law. If you read the book of Numbers you know that of course it was still an expression of worship but it was required of every Israelite. And it wasn't just a tent, it was also uh, three festivals that they would be required to attend every year. There was an offering that was given then, uh, temple shekel, and then also if you were a farmer, you were supposed to supply for the poor by leaving the corners of your field unharvested. So you would, you would, you would harvest your field, but you would leave the four corners unharvested because you were being generous to those who were in need. All of that, as we get to the New Testament, all of that is expanded through the gospel of grace. So the New Testament doesn't limit giving to a tenth because grace, why you say? Because grace has a greater impact than the law and sets us at liberty to be more generous, not less generous. This concept of generosity, this concept of worship to God, you know, sometimes, I know this is none of you, but sometimes it's like, well, how little do I have to give and still have it count, right? That's kind, of the, that's kind of the idea. It's like, well, what can I get away with, right? I mean, I don't, I don't want to be overboard. But, but the New Testament teaches us to live overboard, right? The, the, the New Testament teaches us to live excessively in our generosity to God. You say, well, give me some evidence of that. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, right? Incarnation, <laughs> crucifixion resurrection. Obviously the root of giving in the new testament is not obligation, it's not pressure, it's not manipulation. What is it then? It is it is the son of God. It is everything that we're considering this December. It is the incarnation for God so loved the world that he gave and he came, right? condescension heaven to earth. You can never you'll never be able to fathom the contrast of those two things. God gave his only son. Right? When's the last time you gave something as precious as your own child? Meditate on that for a while. And it wasn't just the giving of the son in the sense of, and the word became flesh. No, he went to the cross. It's the crucifixion. It's the sacrifice that he made. He, the father didn't just give the son, but the son gave himself when he hung on the cross. And then the story didn't end there. He was victoriously raised from the dead on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God. And so when we, when we talk about worshiping God through generosity, fundamentally the foundation of that is the life of Christ. Sometimes people say to me, Pastor, how much should I give? Should I give a tenth? And my answer is that's a great place to start. <laughs> hey, that's a great place to start. I mean, it's biblical. It's bi- Some people say, well, the tenth was the law. Well, this story with Abraham precedes the law. And so it's not just the law, it's codified in the law, but the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us to push the boundaries of generosity. You know, when you read uh, about giving in the New Testament, you discover these two things in the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, it should be a spiritual habit. It should be a spiritual habit. Sometimes uh, this is called a spiritual discipline, but you know, the word discipline carries with it a sense of like obligation and difficulty. And I I don't think, I think that we've messed that word up. It should be a spiritual habit. In other words, it's not just because I have to, it's because I want to. You know, in fact, Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, he talked about three specific spiritual disciplines that should come naturally to the people of God. Three things that we should want to do. Number one, do you guys know what they are in, in the Sermon on the Mount? Number one is prayer. Right, a spiritual habit that we've established in our life is talking to God. I think that's a really good thing. Um, the second one is fasting. No, I'm, I'm looking, I'm observing right now. Because you know, fasting is not easy. And it's like, are you serious? Like, skip a meal? What? Are you crazy? Are you from another planet? That just, fasting is the second spiritual habit that Jesus told his disciples they needed to be engaged in consistently. And then the third one is generosity. The third one is giving. The way he framed it was like this. Uh, he said, when you give, not if you give, or you know, when it's convenient for you to give, or you know, when there's a surplus you can give. No, he said, when you give. Like This is just part of what you do. And let me tell you something, giving is so fun. It is so fun. When you live generously to the things of God, it is absolutely amazing. Because, you know, and, and, and sometimes, look, sometimes generosity gets so f- framed as something that's difficult. And I'm not framing it that way today because you'll miss out on the blessing. Look, when you're in a place and you're, you're living freely before God, you're not holding on to things tightly, you don't have an iron-clad grip on the possessions that God has blessed you to have, but you come to Him like this and just as the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart and you choose to live generously and you know the heart of the Father is blessed... Like, you know, the face of God, the countenance of God shines upon you when you're worshiping him and giving him praise in song or in prayer or living righteously. The same is with generosity. The countenance of God is shining brightly upon you in that moment, and you know it. And not only do you know that it pleases the Father, but there is joy that fills your heart because you're released from your possessions possessing you. You're not tied down. You're not... You're not tied down. You're not a servant. You're not a slave. You're not in bondage to your stuff, right? Your life doesn't revolve around it. You're not like, man, I need another storage unit. You know, how is this going to work? I got more, more crap than I know what to deal with. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that word today, but you know. You know what I'm talking about because that's what it is. No, and then this is what happens. You live like, open hands to God and he's he's being worshiped you're filled with joy you start to invest and then what happens you see the kingdom of God advance through your giving you see people born again you see people who were living in darkness now living in light people who were once unthankful to God now thanking God you see revelation chapter 5 fulfilled every tongue every tribe every people every nation that literally the kingdom of God is advancing through the generosity that God has stirred you with. And so it's, it's addicting. I mean, it's addicting. It's just so good. It also reveals your heart, right? Where we lay up our treasures. This is what he said. He said to his disciples, don't lay up for yourself treasures on this earth where rust and moth destroy but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth destroy. For where? You guys know how this wraps up? For where? Like principle here, right? Big principle. Let me just say, how many of you guys are basketball players? Gr- guys and girls, raise your hand. Basketball players, anybody? Wow, this is a very unathletic uh, group we have today. This, is, this illustration is going to make sense to nobody. All right. The easiest thing to do in, the, in basketball is a layup, right? Unless you're Steph Curry... Then you can shoot from like 35 feet away. But the easiest thing in basketball is a layup. And and Jesus is saying, hey, this is easy, right? This This is how you ought to do your layups. Don't do your layups focused on things that are finite or temporary but eternal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Yeah, so in other words, if we're all focused on finite things, that means we have a worldly perspective. Two things we learn from Abraham's life about giving to God and being generous. Number 1 is this. As we consider his life, we discover that it's easy to worship God through giving because God is worthy. It's easy to worship God through giving because God is worthy. So Abraham's rolling back. he's confronted with Melchizedek, this crazy, uh, out of the ordinary character. Who in the world is this guy? Well, the Bible gives us some insight in Hebrews chapter seven, verse two. And in fact, the author to this particular book, it's coming. Here we go. Um, the author to this book is establishing a principle. I don't have time to go into it today. Jesus had to be king, he had to be priest, and he had to be prophet. Those were three Old Testament offices that Christ had to fulfill. How could he be a priest if he wasn't a Levite? He was from the tribe of Judah. Well, the Bible establishes that he received his priesthood through the order of Melchizedek. Um, And this is, who was, was Melchizedek? Well, check this out. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth of all, you just read that, First, we're talking about Melchizedek. First being translated king of righteousness. Melchizedek in Hebrew means king of righteousness. Who is the king of righteousness? Yeah. And then also king of Salem. So evidently this took place um, at uh, what would be called later Jerusalem. Meaning the, the, the word Salem means, well, Salem means peace. Melchi means king. The name together means king of peace. Who is the king of peace? right? Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So this person pops up out of nowhere. He seems to be eternal, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So I believe that what the author is communicating is that this guy was not just a guy. He was none other than a Christophany, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ himself, the Son of God, Coming to earth, physically manifesting himself before the incarnation. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He is without genealogy. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. So, in other words, God Himself, in the second person of the triune Godhead, God Himself meets Abraham after this extraordinary victory. God blesses Abraham. God acknowledges himself to be the one true God, and Abraham's response is to give. I want you just to know, like, uh, this, is, this is low-hanging fruit for interpretation. Abraham wasn't giving to a man. Abraham was not giving to an institution. Abraham was not giving to a cause. Abraham wasn't giving so other people could see. There wasn't a, the group, the crew that Abraham was hanging out with so that he could give in a way that pleased the group. No, he gave to God. And because he gave to God, it was an act of pure worship. The object of your giving is the most important aspect of your giving. It's not for yourself, your good feelings, your sense of value or worth. It's not for people around you so that you could have a reputation or their perception of you can be good. When you give, you give so that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. In other words, there's no strings attached You don't place on people expectations for them to fulfill, because if you did, it would no longer be worship. You know, the word worship itself carries a lot of meanings and connotations in today's vernacular, but the old English word um, was actually worth-ship. I mean, it's really difficult to pronounce. Like, check this out. We are a sippy, right? But like in an old English way, they had a really weird way of talking, but the, it would be pronounced worth-ship, so it means worthiness. It means acknowledgement of worth. Uh, in other words, what you worship reflects what you attribute highest value to. Sometimes, sometimes we get it all backwards, you guys know this. We roll in and it's like, I'm going to worship God because I'm spiritually dry and I need to be filled. I'm going to worship God because, you know, I've just been confused and I want to dwell in God's presence and I need guidance. And you know, the fact is, God is good enough to you to give you that in times of worship, but that's not why we worship. When we gather together and worship God, or when you're on your own, in your car, giving God praise, or choosing to walk walk in righteousness, or you're praying, or you're choosing to believe God, what what you're affirming is His value, His worth. That's what you're saying. What you worship reflects what you attribute highest value to. So when we gather together and we raise our hands, when we gather together, I'm just talking collectively uh, as the people of God, and we're singing with all of our voice, right? We're standing in honor of God. What we're saying is, God, we value you more than anything. God, we, we, es- we esteem you. We attribute to you the greatest worth. And in fact, you guys know, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, this is the song of heaven. The song of heaven is all about the worthiness of God. I think for the magi, you know, those those guys that came, by the way, uh, there were three gifts, but we don't know if there were three wise men. Uh, And they didn't come to Christ when he was a baby in a manger. They came when he was about two years old. I know some of you have just totally messed you up. You're like, Pastor, I just got my nativity scene from Costco, man. (laughs) You know, like you just, you just ruined my nativity scene. Good. Good. You know, they came, they came with gifts. They came with gold, they came with frankincense, and they came with myrrh. I mean, these were very, very expensive gifts. And you know, the story as we reflect on it is not all about those gifts. Why? Because in comparison to him, those gifts were nothing, they were nothing. The gifts, there was really only one gift. It wasn't about the gifts. It was about the gift. And when we make our offering to God, it's like, in light of him, right? In light of him, God, what is this in in light of all that you are? But I bring it to you as an expression of worship. I think this is one reason why worship in the New Testament is so extravagant. Have you noticed that? Like Mary of Bethany, remember, she's in the house of uh, Simon the tax collector. This is just like weeks after her brother Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Crazy crew, you've got the disciples, you've got a tax collector who's now saved, you've got Lazarus who is raised from the dead, and in the midst of all of that, she, you know this was ruminating in her heart. She's like, what can I give? What can I give? What can I offer that expresses how valuable and how, how worthy he is? And sh- so uh, she, she brings this oil of spikenard, this flask of oil, and she pulls back the lid on it, and John later on, recollecting the moment, he said the fragrance, the fragrance of the oil filled the room. It wasn't just the fragrance of the oil, it was the fragrance of worship, like it hung heavy in the room. You know, that moment of of extravagant worship never left the heart of the apostle John, and she takes that flask of oil. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's not worth very much. No, it was worth a lot. It was her dowry. Um, it probably was her 401K program. It represented all of, I mean, they didn't have those back then. But, you know, this was her financial security. This was, hey, if I don't ever get married, I still have this. You know, some people say it was worth about $30,000. She takes the, the flask. She pulls back the lid, and she pours the whole thing. She didn't just pour a part. She she didn't just pour a, a fraction of it. She poured the whole thing over his head, and it drenched him, and all the way down to his feet. And you know what happened in that moment? The disciples criticized her, and all the criticism started. You know who it started with? It started with Judas, it started with Judas because Judas was greedy, and, and in that story, we, we understand, it's revealed to us that he kept the money box, and so he started this thread of criticism, right? He sent a text to all the other disciples, <laughs> and, and he, said, he said this, he's like, you know, because, because he wouldn't have said it out loud, no, he didn't say it out loud, but, but he, said, he said, this money could have been spent on the poor, and so amongst themselves, they start cr- they start circulating this criticism. And Jesus says, shut it, you fools. No, oh, he doesn't say that. But, you know, that's, it's close. It's close in the Greek. He's like, <laughs> I mean, that's, that is essentially what it is, right? He's like, cut it out. Shut your mouths. Who are you to criticize somebody else's worship and giving? Like, this has nothing, this has nothing to do With you. What she has done. She did all she could do for me. I think about the extravagance of, of her giving. I also think about the widow's mite. You know that that was extravagant? Do you know that? Do you know it was extravagant? I mean, here, Jesus is with his disciples. They're on the temple mount. This is like one of, this is, maybe two days before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and before he's crucified. He's hanging out with his disciples. He's taught. He's healed. Now he's watching. It's the giving moment. Everyone's going to the giving boxes and dropping in their stuff. The wealthy people are dropping their stuff in loudly. They're sounding the trumpet. They want everyone to see just how much they give. And then there's this widow, right? She's in with with respect to everybody else, she, was, she had no meaning. She had no value. She was, she was invisible. She was unseen. There was nothing that she had to offer. No, people probably perceived her as a nuisance. And what does she do? She comes up to the giving box and she takes a mite. And a mite, how many of you, when you see a penny on the ground, bend down to pick it up? Just curious. All right. That's a lot of you, man. I'm just shocked. I just got to tell you today. <laughs> Like, this illustration went, went totally south. You guys messed it up for me. <laughs> because, because I seriously thought that none of you would bend down to pick a penny up. But my point was this. I like, pennies today have no value. They have no value. They have less value because we're in a time of inflation. Just about 6%. Don't listen to anybody else tell you otherwise. All right? And, and so it's like, you look at a penny and you think, man, that has no value. Well, a mite was half the size of a penny and it had a quarter of the value and so so she walks by she drops her mite in and Jesus says to his disciples did you see that I mean there's probably it's it's the busiest feast of the year there's probably 80,000 people on the temple mount at this point in time and they're they're probably thinking what are you talking about did we see what did you see what that widow just did Did you see how she gave her might? She gave out of her need. She gave extravagantly. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. $30,000 and and a penny, I mean, come on. Doesn't, Doesn't earthly, worldly value matter? And the answer is no. The answer is no, it doesn't. What matters is the heart. What matters is your extravagant giving to God, which is based on your own personal context, which is based on what the Spirit of God is moving your heart to do. Seeing God's worth changes our perspective from this is all that I have to he is all that I have, right? That's what happens when God downloads his worth and value to us. Instead of being like this with our stuff, instead of being like this, this is my stuff. I need to hold on to it. I need to, I need to handle my future. What happens is this. We're like, God, I've got you and you are more than enough. We sing the song, you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of all, you are worthy of it all, for from you are all things, to you all are all things, you deserve the glory. By the way, that's Romans 11:36. 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Okay, I'm going to drop something on you, are you ready for it? How you spend your money communicates what you value. All right, I'm going to put that in the plural for all of us. How we spend our money communicates what we value. The second thing that we see in Abraham's life, thanks for being patient today, is this. Um, We see that it's easy to worship God through giving because of all he's given to us. You know, if you look at Abraham's life uh, and just comprehensively, what you recognize is that it was all God. Like, it was all God. God made Abraham, God protected Abraham, God blessed Abraham's life. And what's true of Abraham is true for you too. God has made you, God is protecting you, and God has blessed you. Abraham comes back from Luz, this was where he won the victory. He knows, as he's standing there before the pre-incarnate Christ, he knows. He was outnumbered. He took strategic risks. He was, in, he was on foreign territory. There is no way that he could have won that victory without God. God was the one who did it, right? And not only did God do it, but God probably bailed Abraham out. This was probably a bailout. Why was it a bailout? Because there was incomplete obedience in Abraham's life. Remember, God said, get out of this land and get away from your family. What did Abraham do? Well, he got out of the land, but he didn't get away from his family. You know, his brother had died. He had a nephew. He might have been thinking, well, you know, it's my responsibility to take care of him. But when God commands you to do something, that means that you've got to trust him with everything. And what he should have done was this. He should have obeyed the command of God and entrusted his nephew to the Lord. Instead of doing that, he takes his nephew, and there was conflict and difficulty all the way through. And it may have been in this moment, I'm speculating right now, um, this is not a new thought, but, but it may have been in this moment, it could have been something like this, God, you know what, I'm gonna choose to do the right thing, but, but I should have done the right thing. From the beginning, I should have done the right thing. I should have given you complete obedience. I shouldn't have held on to my nephew. And so in a way, God, I'm going to do the right thing, but please, would you be merciful to me? I need you to bail me out because really what's happening right now is a result of my own personal disobedience. Let me ask you today, what lot are you holding on to? Is there a lot, not a lot, but is there a lot, is there a lot in your life? Is there incomplete obedience? You know, sometimes this is how jacked up we are. Sometimes it's like, well, I've been 90% compliant I mean, God, that's got to count for something. Look how far I've come. I mean, don't put too heavy of expectations on me, God, because look at all that I've done. Look at the journey that, that I've made so far. And certainly that's got to be enough. And so we justify that 10% of incomplete obedience because we've been 90% obedient. And you know that thinking is just the flash. You think that God somehow is like, dang, I didn't do the math on that, bro. <laughs> like... Thanks for helping me out. Like, I'm surrounded by all these smart people, but they're dumb compared to you. And and God's like, yeah, 90%, man, that's cool, you know? The little divine thumbs up from heaven? No, I mean, that's that's not what God's thinking. Is there a lot in your life? Because listen, if you hold on to something that God is calling you to let go of, it will cost you. It will cost you. You will end up paying. I think about the rich young ruler... You know, there, he was unwilling to let go of his possessions even in the face of Christ himself, right? He's being talked through this issue by the Lord himself and he won't let it go because his possessions possessed him. Generosity reflects our experience. Generosity reflects our experience with God. Little experience, little generosity. How profound and deep and powerful Has your experience with the Lord been? You know, Jesus, again, was uh, at dinner. This time he was in the house of Simon the Pharisee. When Jesus rolled into the house of Simon the Pharisee, he did not get the the, uh, normal, customary, cultural expression of kindness. There was no washing of his feet. There was no anointing of his head with oil. Now, I'll tell you right now that Simon probably did that with all of his other guests. But he did not do it with Jesus. And so Jesus is in the house, he's probably surrounded by his enemies, and then all, he's, he's been disrespected already, and then all of a sudden this notorious woman, everyone knew this woman, she rolls in, we don't know who she was, some people connect her to Mary Magdalene because in the previous chapter the Bible says Mary had been exercised of seven demons. So it might have been Mary, she was notorious, she had a reputation, probably a prostitute, She rolls in, she goes down to the feet of Christ, she begins to weep over his feet, right? She had had some profound experience with the Lord earlier, and then she takes her hair and she wipes off the dirt on his feet with her hair and with her tears. And Simon is critical, like he's thinking in his mind he's thinking man if he were really a prophet he would know what manner of woman this was that's doing this to him but Jesus knew his thoughts isn't that a little disturbing today you know like he knows everything and he says Simon i want to tell you a story he lays out the story about these two people who owed this creditor one was forgiven a little bit one was forgiven a lot And Jesus said, who do you think is going to love more? And Simon says, well, the one who was forgiven a lot. He says, absolutely. And then he looks at the woman and he says, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Look, when you experience Christ, this is the point, and you are forgiven, you are cleansed, you are adopted into the family of God, you are filled with the power of God's Holy Spirit, you have a destiny that's settled in heaven. One day you know that you will be in the new Jerusalem worshiping the Father and the Lamb who are, who are front and center. If you've experienced that, then all boundaries to your giving have been eliminated, There are no boundaries anymore. We give generously because he gave. And there are amazing blessings in generous worship. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. This is just so solid. Just with respect to this thought, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows abundantly or bountifully will also reap bountifully, so that each one of you give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Hey, we don't talk about giving very often. When it comes up in scripture, then we mention it. Um, But we don't push, we don't beg, because God's not broke. We don't need to. God will be faithful to provide, right? What we do do, what we do do is we provide opportunities for you. We provide opportunities. If you have a financial counselor right now, they're like, hey, let me just tell you, okay, crypto, bad idea. Crypto, bad idea. It's tanking right now. Who knows where the bottom is at? Stocks, you know, a little unstable. Maybe, maybe, you know, commodities, you get advice from your financial advisor. I'm your spiritual advisor. Look, that person's advising you in temporary things. We get to advise you in heavenly things. We say, <laughs> that's true. I hope you see this. You know, we, we, we say, hey, church plant, right? Church plant. We say LV reach. We say building project. Uh, we say opportunity to support a missionary. We say, hey, we're doing something to reach the impoverished or Um, you know, the people who are at need in our community. These are opportunities, right? You pray, you seek the face of God because you know what happens when, when you start going like this to God and you say, hey, Lord, you're worthy. You've been faithful. It all belongs to you. Do what you desire. Guide me by your spirit. He will guide you. He'll say, I want you to do this or I want you to do that. And you'll take that step of faith and he will be honored as you worship him and people's lives will be transformed forever. Look, do the layup. Do the layup. Jesus said this. You know, Paul mentions this as something that Christ said is so interesting. It's not contained in the gospel. So this was oral tradition that had passed this on. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. He said, just as the Lord said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, thank you. God, we're grateful today. We can live generously. We, can, we don't have to be enslaved to our stuff. God, we don't have to be possessed by our possessions. We don't have to figure our lives out and manage it by our own finite understanding. God, we can just come to you with open hearts and open hands. And you are a God who always gives. You are relentless in your giving. This morning, as our eyes are closed and as our heads are bowed, you know, maybe your perception of church is, has just been that uh, Christians and churches are all about taking and it's about what they can get from you and that is not the message of the Bible and that is not who God is. God is the one who loves to give. He loves to give. He he consistently and faithfully demonstrates this and in the greatest way He demonstrated it in the giving of His own Son. Today, if you're not a Christian, we're not not asking for you to give anything. We're asking for you to receive today. To receive the gift that God gave. To receive the gift of everlasting life. To open up your heart and to say yes to God. God is the one who is initiating this relationship with you. He's been after you because you matter to him you are precious in the eyes of your maker you may not feel that way you may feel invisible to the world around you but there is one who sees and he is present now and he wants he wants to give himself to you if you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ and And today, God's speaking to you, and you know, maybe you've known for some time that you need to take this step. I want to pray for you today. This is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. Maybe many important decisions in in this life in a temporary sense, but this is an eternal decision. So today, if you want to put your faith in Christ, you want to believe in Jesus, I want to pray for you this morning. Would you just raise your hand today? You've come in as a non-Christian, a non-believer, but you want to leave leave today known by God. Stretch your hand up high. I see your hand over here on my left in the back. It's awesome. Anybody else? Over here in the center in the back on my right? Right here. Thank you so much. I see your hand in the back on my right too. I see your hand. That's awesome. Praise God. Anybody else? If you're a Christian today, and you know maybe, listen, maybe today you've just realized you've been holding on to temporary things and and it's holding you back from God's best. But today you need to be refreshed by God's Spirit. You need a, a just a new a new work. In a way, just a, a fresh start. I want to encourage you today to take a step. Maybe there's a a lot in your life, an area of incomplete obedience to God, something you've held on to, and it just needs to be released. It needs to be released. This is you today. I want you to raise your hand. Stretch it up high. God bless you. God bless you and you. Thank you for here on my right in the back on my left so good here in the center in the front in the back on my right is it good God I see your hands you can put your hands down and Father thank you God we are so thankful that you're present with us today we you filled this place with your love and grace and We ask for strength, God, strength for these lives. Thank you that you've met these hearts. We pray today as steps of faith and obedience are taken that that God, you would grant the victory in Jesus' name.